Hello, my name is Anthony, and this is my podcast, Theologizing Life, where we talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. Welcome to Theologizing Life. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. And thank you for those of you who like or share or rate the podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts. Any little thing you do can help increase our listener base. Today, I'm excited to share uh, an episode where I interviewed Dr. Miranda Cruz. She has her PhD uh, in philosophy and religion and politics and society. And she teaches uh, at Indiana Wesleyan University. She's a professor in the School of Theology and Ministry. She teaches theology and church history with an emphasis on practical application for local church ministry. So she is on the front lines of training future pastors. She also uh, has a blog, uh, website, MirandaZaporCruz.com, where she writes about the intersection of kingdom and country. So she has written... Uh, about sort of approaching politics with a theological lens, uh, with a biblical worldview. She's written on Christian nationalism. And our conversation happened about a week after the January 6th riots at the Capitol. And so that plays a little bit into our conversation. Um, I, uh, Regardless of where you land um, on the political spectrum, uh, we talk about just a lot of different things related to nationalism, our country's history, uh, where different ideologies, sort of how different ideologies popped up. So um, it was it was a really uh, just intriguing conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed having this with her, and I was I was glad she could join us. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hello, and welcome to Theologizing Life, uh, where we talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. Uh, today, I have Dr. Miranda Cruz uh, joining me. Uh, she's a professor in the School of Theology and Ministry at Indiana Wesleyan. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about a potentially touchy subject, but our aim, I think, for both of us is to wrestle with how, uh, how do we approach politics, uh, but also recognize and stay true to our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Um, so I want to begin just by uh, thanking you for joining us today. And uh, as always, I like to ask our guests to just tell us a little bit about your story. Who is Dr. Miranda Cruz in a nutshell? Sure. So uh, I've been teaching at Indiana Wesleyan for, this is my six, uh, seventh year. Uh, and this is really my dream job. I've wanted to teach theology and church history at a Christian college since I knew that that was a thing that people did with their lives. Uh, and I came to that uh, by way of feeling a strong sense of a call to ministry, to pastoral ministry, and then in college really um, shifted that toward uh, the ministry of teaching. And I very much think of uh, my role as a professor as being a pastoral role. Uh, this is how I make disciples. So I've uh, been here. Uh, before I was at Indiana Wesleyan, I got my PhD from Baylor uh, down in Waco, Texas. Uh, and that degree is in religion, politics, and society. 
So uh, my classmates in that program and I would always joke that we just can't have a conversations with people because <laughs> what we study <laughs> is things you're not supposed to talk about. Right. Uh, impolite company. <laughs> so uh, religion and politics is really um, my my thing, my my area of expertise and also a real area of concern for me as, as we kind of navigate what does it mean to be a Christian in the United States and in our particular political systems. Uh, so I actually studied the church under communism. That's what my dissertation was on. But a lot of kind of that, those bigger questions about the relationship between the church and the government and religious liberty and economics and <laughs> government structures, all of those things, uh, then I see a lot of not direct parallels, but lessons for the church in the United States uh, that come out of that. So uh, religion and nationalism and political engagement and all of that kind of thing are really where I spend a lot of my thought time uh, when I'm not you know, teaching all kinds of uh, theology and church history courses here at IWU. Um, that's uh, it's really interesting. I think my particular flavor in uh, the realm of theology uh, would would be a little more in the maybe the philosophical uh, end. So, but I'm thankful for your voice in this. Um, uh, just curious, uh, what's um, your family uh, mm -hmm. uh, kind of roles uh, with family? Sure. Uh, so I am married to my husband Jonathan. Uh, he is a pastor. Um, he's had been serving a church in Indy, uh, Indianapolis for the past five and a half years. And he just recently stepped down from that role to be a stay at home dad for a while. Uh, we have a 14 month old. So, uh, he partly just has that, uh, that paternal desire to get to spend that time with her and partly with, COVID and some health concerns. We're just not real comfortable sending her to daycare right now. So uh, yep. it worked out really well that, that he has that that desire to be home with her and that we're able to make that happen. Uh, so we've always been kind of serving in ministry together. We met in ministerial contexts. Uh, we've been married for eight and a half years that sounds right. <laughs> uh, and so we we met in Texas when uh, while I was working on my PhD and he was uh, at Truett Seminary at the time. Uh, and other than that, all of all of his family's in Texas and all of my family is elsewhere in the country. We moved to Indiana for my job. So, uh, wow. yeah, it, it's just the three of us <laughs> here in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, you know, an, an extended family of uh, church and work people that we've come to love. Yeah, yeah, I get the, yeah, the daycare thing. My wife stays, but she did before COVID. She was after mm -hmm. we had our first child, she's stayed home. Mm -hmm. um, how's your husband deal with the winter uh, here uh, after living in Texas? Yeah, is it, it rough? Is, it is rough. He, he actually has grown to really like seasons. There's in Texas, or at least in central Texas, it gets chilly for a few weeks, maybe in February. And other than that, it's just hot. So here we like, you know, even when it's, you know, relatively hot, you know, it's going to end. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. good. Um, yep. But it is, it was a difficult transition. Uh, and definitely the, the darker evenings really affected him at first. And we've kind of oh, yeah. figured that out and got the right 
weight of coats and figured out how to manage seasonal depression and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get that too. Uh, so this, this may be a hard question or a vague question. I don't know. I'm just going to try to, the, uh, the intersection of like the religion, politics and society, like your PhD, mm-hmm. what sort of inspired, cause you, you said you kind of felt a call to ministry and then was inspired mm-hmm. by teaching. And then probably as you pursued the teaching piece, that's when you decided on that PhD, but what, uh, what inspired, had you been kind of passionate about politics or just history in general before? Like what, uh, what shaped that pursuit? Yeah, it came definitely more from the history side than the politics side. Uh, I was in my undergrad, I went to Whitworth college, which is in Spokane, Washington. It's a, um, small, uh, Presbyterian college. Uh, and, taking church history classes there, we, you know, get into, um, I remember talking about like how political rhetoric included scripture, things like that. Like how do presidential candidates use scripture? I remember talking about Abraham Lincoln, that kind of thing. So it was much less focused on current events back then. Um, And then I went on a, a Germany study tour during a May term uh, that was focused on uh, the Reformation part of it and then the German church struggle. So Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth and what the church was doing uh, in Nazi Germany. And those questions of the church uh, in Nazi Germany, really, that's what really sparked that interest and that passion for thinking through what, what is the church's role um, and what is its relationship with the government and how does it handle uh, repression? When do you stand up against the government and when is it more important to you know, follow the law and those kinds of yeah. questions. And so my interest in that really grew from there. And that's how I got interested in uh, the church under communism uh, in Eastern Europe in particular. And then uh I've always kind of followed, you know, United States current events just because I live in the United States. Um, But what really got me applying what I was learning in uh, in my education uh, to what I was seeing happening in the world was really when President Obama was elected and almost immediately uh, there was a spike in um, religiously motivated violence. Um, some of that with, uh, with not going back to nine 11 as well, but I was, um, I was a freshman in college when nine 11 happened. So it was kind of following, observing these phenomena, but didn't really have a framework for understanding what was happening, yeah. um, with nationalism and patriotism and that kind of thing. So, um, when president Obama was elected, there was an immediate rise in, uh, anti-black hate groups like a Hmm. measurable rise, like people started joining the Klan uh, and things like that. And so I hadn't really been following partisan politics um, any more than kind of your typical person who is curious who they want to vote for up until that point. And that, that reaction to Obama's election was so startling to me uh, that I really started following that kind of overlap between um, evangelical Christianity and 
uh, nationalism and Christian nationalism and race and all of this very complex matrix of issues. So uh, since then, even as I was really focused on Eastern Europe in my academic um, preparation, I've, I've always had kind of an eye on what's going on in evangelicalism in particular and politics uh, and Christian nationalism. And then in the past uh, four years, um, you know, being done with my dissertation and all of that, of course, um, and living in the Midwest and uh, kind of acclimating to Midwest culture, which isn't all that different from Texas, but uh, and in the 2016 election, just it was just a very pressing thing, um, the way uh, evangelicals um, participated and engaged with politics and the overlap of that with Christian nationalism. And uh, yeah, this very complex and often troubling matrix of beliefs and ideologies and actions that I've been following really closely and um, trying to kind of process what I'm seeing uh, in writing. Yeah, that's, and I hope to get into some of that and hopefully in a way that people would will be able to at least um, consider and wrestle with. Mm -hmm. um, but so I want to dive into a couple of those, those terms and understandings uh, of like Christian nationalism. On your blog, you, you talk about that you're passionate about exploring the intersection of kingdom and country. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it may be helpful to define some of that before you answer this question, but I think it's uh, important to note that this is uh, just over a week from the January 6th uh, Capitol uh, protest and, uh, you know, riot uh, is, I, I think, I, I think it's fair to say it. there was riotous um, things happening and, uh, and we're recording before the inauguration day. So hopefully uh, nothing else is, yet to transpire, but that's sort of the context of this interview. So I'm just kind of curious. And like I said, if you feel it's necessary to maybe explain some terms, uh, you could go ahead and do that. But just based on your, you know, your endeavors of what you've studied up to this point, uh, what happened last week? Uh, how did we get there? What are some of the things you're seeing in our country? And uh, as a Christ follower, what are your concerns and things like that? Yeah, that's, that is a big question. Uh, so what we saw last week was a wide range of different groups uh, and individuals who came to the Capitol for different reasons, but all of those reasons kind of coalescing around support for President Trump. So you have uh, groups of people who have no kind of religious component per se. Uh, you have people who are um, the, the QAnon yeah. people who've bought into a, a very strange and incoherent conspiracy theory. Uh, unfortunately, there is quite a bit of overlap between people who've bought into QAnon and people who consider themselves Christian. Uh, so you have that group who are motivated by things from within that conspiracy theory. Um, you have people who consider themselves patriots in line with kind of the the founding revolutionaries of the country, yeah. and some of them yeah. have 
religious motivations mixed up within that and some of them don't. Um, and then you have uh, white supremacist groups um, and alt-right groups. That's They're not identical, but there's a great deal of overlap between the alt-right and white supremacy. Uh, you have people who don't necessarily align with any group, but they're kind of Donald Trump super fans in a way. Um, they tend to be less affiliated with the, uh, the militia type groups or with political extremism um, and are more groupies, for lack of a better word, maybe. Uh, and then you also have uh, evangelical Christians specifically evangelical, less so mainline. Uh, and among the evangelical Christians, you have some people who um, went to D.C. for a prayer rally uh, and really only participated in that prayer rally. Um, right. Yeah, they did that, didn't go to the Capitol, or if they did, they didn't uh, participate in the violence. Um, but then you have other people who are uh, evangelical Christians who overlap with these other groups, um, with militia groups, with um, Patriot Front type groups, uh, whose, um, whose Christian faith and their politics have become so closely intertwined that they no longer see a distinction between what they ought to do as a Christian and what they are kind of driven to do by political extremism. And when that happens, almost always the political extremism is going to uh, kind of reshape and malform Christian belief and practice. So for the people who are there who um, participated in, uh, in violence, either violence against people or who were participating in that, the actual physical storming of the building, entering the building, breaking windows, that kind of thing. Um, we know that there were people among that group who would consider themselves evangelical Christians because they were carrying crosses and waving yeah. Jesus saves flags and things like that. So they identify themselves in that way. Uh, so that's where you get this overlap, this political extremism that, yeah, so, so kind of twists kind of basic Christian doctrine and Christian convictions that people come to think that their politically extremist ideas uh, and actions are actually justified yeah. um, by Christian faith. And all of that, the development, how that happens, that all gets really complicated. But that's, that's part of why um, as the FBI and other groups are trying to dig into what actually happened. It's really difficult to to parse all that out. And it's also why um, all of us, especially those of us who are Christian and who have um, wide circles of uh, evangelical friends and family and things like that, will simultaneously see in social media, especially, um, but also in um, print or online or um, TV media, uh, we'll see totally different accounts of what happened. So we may have friends who were at DC or had, you know, friends of friends who were in DC who are insisting like, no, this was a peaceful protest. People were just gathering and worshiping and praying. And that may be in fact, what their right. friend, a friend of a friend personally experienced. Yeah. So, and at the same time, um, 
you see, you know, irrefutable images of uh, the violence that did in fact take place. Um, and you see people being interviewed and that kind of thing. So you, you get these totally different perspectives that are both accurate in, in at least kind of a limited way, uh, which then, you know, increases the polarization and division. Right. Uh, and so one of the things we're seeing is a lot of evangelical Christians uh, kind of doubling down on the idea that this was either um, mostly peaceful. I've pe- seen people say things like, oh, it was just a few broken windows or something like that. Yeah. Um, so you see kind of doubling down on that idea. You see doubling down on um, the idea that outside agitators were the ones who were actually doing this, that it wasn't President Trump supporters, even though there's no, um, the FBI has said there's no evidence of that. Uh, and part of the reason that you see this um, with evangelicals in particular is because uh, evangelicals uh, broadly, the, the majority of evangelicals voted for and supported and continue to support the president, but they don't just support him in the way that, you know, kind of average Americans have an affinity for a political candidate. Um, Many of them support him uh, because they believe that he is um, chosen by God uh, and that he in spite of his kind of unchristian character uh, is being used by God for a specific purpose. And so when you attach that um, kind of divine hand of favor to a person, then for a Christian to change kind of political allegiance or kind of change your opinion about uh, a political leader, it's not as simple as it might be for someone whose faith isn't attached to this person. Yeah. Uh, so if you if you don't have any kind of religious affiliation with someone, you can say, oh, they did something I don't like, I'm gonna change my mind. Or, you know, I, I thought I was yeah. kind of interested in their policies, but I'm not so sure anymore. But if you believe that this person is God's person, then to turn your back on that person is to turn your back on God. Yeah. Right. So you get that that's where you get this kind of fanaticism that yeah. can lead to violence. And I, yeah, so I'm going to ask a question before I do. I want to say we are speaking to a degree in gen generalities mm-hmm. uh, and it's not true of everyone. Absolutely. But there's enough statistical uh, data to say that the generalities that we are ascribing to some evangelical Christians, like it's not without warrant. And, uh, and so I just want to, I want to clarify that. Um, and I just want to, and this is from kind of your perspective, but it's a, mm-hmm. it's an informed perspective. So what, what is the purpose or the particular calling that a lot of Christians believe Trump has uh, that like, uh, this divine hand of God, like, what is it that he is to accomplish or, uh, even the idea of like saving or taking our country back. Mm-hmm. What what are we saving it from? What are we taking it back from? Uh, and and who are our enemies? And we can probably then we can go on from there and, and probably talk. But like, what is this mission? I guess that they believe he has, mm-hmm. uh, and and what are we saving the country from? Sure. Uh, so for the the two biggest 
things for evangelicals who support Trump are abortion and same-sex marriage. Um, that's not that's not just kind of a vague impression. We have data, <laughs> survey information, people yeah. saying like, this is really why I'm voting for that. So going back to the 2016 election, uh, Donald Trump started gaining popularity with evangelicals the more he promised to appoint um, conservative justices, not only to the Supreme Court, but to federal courts at all levels across the country. So I, that's fine. That, that's a, 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 an issue that is worth caring about. It's, an yeah, it's not a bad worth, thing. Right. It's, it's not a bad thing to care about what um, policies are uh, in the United States um, concerning abortion. I, the challenge, the, the problem is, um, from my perspective, is that those, those two issues, abortion and same-sex marriage, they kind of become a proxy for lots of different cultural shifts, for the culture wars, we're familiar with that kind of terminology, um, that basically reduces all of the things that could be important or that should be important to uh, evangelical Christians to these two very narrow and specific issues. So I, I'm sure we've all heard and some have, uh, some people listening may have even said something like, you just can't be a Christian and vote for X candidate. And usually that has something to do with abortion. Uh, yeah. Same-sex marriage is usually secondary, though not always. Um, I'll I'll say for the record, so your listeners know that I'm pro-life. Yep. I, I I believe in the sanctity of human life, and that's something that I care about. I I also believe that Christ cares calls us to care about many many things. Yeah. And so I think we we run into trouble when we kind of reduce what a Christian political engagement needs to look like to just one issue, no matter how important that one issue is. And so when we say like, okay, this is the thing that I care about, or the, the only thing that the, the Trump card, for lack of a better word, uh, of all the issues, I, it becomes possible then because that, that is a righteous cause. Let's say, I, I believe that God loves and cares for the unborn. Uh, and so it's, it's a short step from I believe that about God to therefore whatever I do to protect the unborn is by definition godly or Christly. Um, even Which obviously, if you take that to an extreme, like someone, uh, most Christians wouldn't condone blowing up an abortion clinic. Right. Um, but, but that's the thing about some of these ideas too, is mm -hmm. like when they get to extremes, it gets dangerous, yeah. but anyways, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it and it can be seen as justified, right? Uh, very easily, uh, and then it also makes it very easy to excuse other things that we might not otherwise. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, we saw this was the case with Ronald Reagan as well. Um, it's kind of where kind of the culture wars kind of became very political as with Reagan, um, but we see the sense that like, okay, this is the most important thing, and therefore these other things don't actually matter or God is using them in the service of this one really important thing. Uh, so 
yeah, that, that attachment, um, that narrowing of the Christian vision of what morality is about and then what's really important and then how that translates to the political sphere. It's really, really easy to say, okay, this is the one issue that matters. And I don't really have to think about anything else because this is the one issue that matters. Right. I, a more faithful Christian approach would be to say, this is an issue that matters. These are also a whole bunch of other issues that matter. And I'm going to do the really hard work and the constant work of thinking through how do I navigate that? And also recognizing that when we take all of the issues that should matter to Christians, we're not going to align easily with either major political party. It's a lot easier to just pick one and align mm -hmm. with it. And then you don't right. really think about it too much anymore. Um, but that's not, you, you really, you'd have a hard time reading scripture and then saying like, oh yeah, the, I can just sort the Bible. If I were to sort the things that scripture tells me matter to God and say, okay, I tend to associate that with being a conservative issue versus I tend to associate that with being a progressive issue. You're going to end up with things that both are conservative and progressive from a contemporary American political perspective. And we don't like that cognitive dissonance. Right. It's a lot easier yeah. to just say, I'm all the way one, one or the other. Uh, so that, that's a big piece of what has. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that, well, actually, yeah. One of the things I think seems to be from my perspective in the church is this idea that part of our mission as God's people is to uh, Christianize mm -hmm. the, the world, but like our nation, um, which it, that sounds weird because like that sounds like the right thing, but it seems to have a, um, I, I wrestle with how that lines up with like what Jesus calls us to when it plays out, like, because mm -hmm. it usually tends to in my perspective, it tends to lean towards like basically forcing people into the kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, when we try to Christianize from the top down, you know, from power, uh, mm -hmm. places of power. Um, but that seems to be like kind of the justified mission of a lot of Christians in our country is like, this is in service. So it's, yeah, the abortion and um, homosexual marriage issue. Uh, and those are such big issues because our missions to Christianize the nation. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we're to seek first the kingdom of God, but the scripture does indicate we should seek the flourishing of our country, you know, mm -hmm. live peaceful lives, honor the authorities. Um, I don't know. Is Christian Christianization synonymous with seeking first the kingdom of God? Is that our, is that what Jesus has called us to is to sort of Christianize through legislation and political power the world i i would say no i for a couple of reasons first of all i attempts to to christianize um to um keep or make or return america to being a christian nation kind of fundamentally misidentify what Christian means. Hmm. Uh, so to have a nation, a country, um, 
that identifies itself as Christian generally means uh, a country that has uh, a generally Christian sense of moral values. Uh, this is why you see abortion and same-sex marriage being so important, but other things as well. Um, prayer in schools will come up as related to that. Um, there, there's other things, but almost all of them have to do with behavior, not belief. So people who are attempting to Christianize or who want to um, take America back to its Christian roots, they're not generally talking about making disciples um, or uh, bearing witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, or leading people to um, a personal profession of faith uh, or even to church attendance necessarily. Um, what they're working for is a particular type of moral order for society. Now, is that a good moral order? I think in general, a godly moral order is better than an ungodly moral order. Sure. Um, but the problem is uh, with calling that Christianization and saying, what what it means to be Christian is to follow a particular type of morality and to impose that morality on others. And it doesn't really have anything to do with whether I profess faith uh, in Jesus as the resurrected son of God. So I think that it fundamentally misunderstands the mission of the church. And our command as Christians. I, because the United States is a, a secular pluralist nation, um, by which I mean it, it's secular in the sense that its laws are founded on um, rational deism, more or less. There's certainly absolutely Christian influences within that. Different, some of the founding fathers were. Uh, more evangelical, kind of revivalist-leaning Christians, some are kind of mainline Christians, uh, some are deist, um, but they all have kind of a broadly Christian influence. Uh, but the founding fathers, in debating uh, religion and the role of religion in the country, they consciously chose uh, that the country was going to not have any kind of religious establishment. And so... Um, it's secular in that sense. Our, our laws are based on reason, not on religion. They overlap. You know, right. uh, it is a reasonable law to have murder be illegal, right. but, but it's illegal in the United States because that's a reasonable law, not because it's one of the Ten Commandments. They just, you know, conveniently happen to overlap. So it's easy for Christians to follow that and agree with that. Uh, so. The idea of, uh, since we are a pluralist society as well, not everyone is Christian. Uh, the question then becomes, okay, what is the kind of moral order that is appropriate for a secular pluralist society versus the kind of moral order that is uniquely Christian uh, and therefore kind of inappropriate to impose on a pluralist society? And one of the things that is maybe sadly ironic about that is you say that the, maybe the most distinctive moral uh, characteristic of Christianity is self-sacrifice. 
That's how we follow Christ. It's considering right. it's more important than ourselves. No one's trying to legislate others to be self-sacrificial. Right. Um, no one's right. going to say like, it is, yeah. it is the law of the land that you forgive your debts or things yeah. like that. Nobody's trying to do that. Um, what is trying to be legislated is other kinds of moral behaviors, um, especially moral behaviors that have to do with sex or sexuality. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a whole nother, like much larger and more complicated history. Why right. those things in particular matter so much. Um, but what ends up happening uh, is that whatever the intention of Christians is who want to, um, whose political engagement is primarily focused around establishing a particular type of moral order, what that does in reality is alienate people in a secular pluralist society. So we have to ask ourselves, which is more, which is more important and which is more consistent with the mission that Christ has given us? Uh, drawing people's behaviors um, into alignment with Christian morality or certain aspects of Christian morality, or drawing people to submission to Christ. If we draw people to submission of Christ, then the other kind of aspects of moral order follow whether legislation dictates them or not. Uh, if we're focused on the conformity through legislation, then we do harm to our Christian witness. And that's what we're seeing with millennials and Gen Z right now. Um, Christian, Christian adherence in the United States, church attendance, um, and just profession of faith have been declining precipitously. Um, just between 20, 2007 and 2014, the percentage of people in the United States who considered themselves Christian or self-identified as Christian dropped from, I think it's 71% to 65%, something like that. Um, and yeah. continued to go down, go down six, 2014. Yeah. Um, so I, I was having a conversation with a friend recently who's not a Christian. Um, and she, she grew up in the church, but uh, kind of rejected it for a variety of reasons. And so I was talking to her on Wednesday or Thursday um, last week. And she said, you know, I don't want to offend you, but if I was looking into Christianity right now, I would stop after what I saw uh, at the Capitol on Wednesday because people are carrying crosses and waving Jesus saves flags. And if I was considering maybe starting to go to church again or wanting to kind of read the Bible again or something like that, I would have set aside that idea. And I've heard things along those lines from several people. Yeah. So I think we need to have clarity about what our mission is. Right. Yeah. It was, it was ironic to me to see a picture of um, a cross in the midst of the mob. And that is a symbol of the crucified Messiah, mm -hmm. a Messiah who the Jews expected to lead a political revolution against Rome, but he was actually crucified on that cross and here in the midst of this mob is that symbol um, mm -hmm. while people are again trying to grasp for political power through uh through violent means and the irony was was unsettling um it seemed that self-sacrificing thing it seems there's a lot of other things at least in american christianity that has taken 
quite a bit more priority and like standing for the truth or fighting for your faith. Uh, well, I guess I should, I should disclose. I have more of an Anabaptist sort of leaning on, on violence and, and things anyway. So I guess I'm probably biased, but like, uh, yeah, it just seems like standing for truth and fighting for our faith has, uh, taken priority over the example of Jesus who, you know, knelt and washed the feet of his disciples. And then while being crucified said, father, forgive them. And, uh, it is troubling. I, I would, it, it does cause disillusionment, I think, among people who don't understand. Um, yeah. So one of the things, one of the things I heard not too long ago was there was someone on a talk, a talk show, a Christian talk show that said something along the lines of America has made a covenant with God. Uh, and I think, and I tried to look into that idea a little bit and it seems like our constitution is viewed almost as like a covenant and, and we are breaking that covenant. And so the call for us to get back to our Christian roots is a call for us back to covenant faithfulness. Um, for me, I thought that's odd. I think in scripture, God always initiates the covenant and we are new covenant people. And I don't, I don't know that that's theologically sound to say America has made a covenant with God and, and things like that. That was my take. So anyways, like, have you heard that idea? Um, what, where did that come from? What's going on there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that has a long history. So, uh, that goes back to, um, John Calvin and covenant theology which is a, a pretty large, complex kind of meta system for thinking through scripture and politics and things like that. Um, but the way it was applied in the United States, right, particularly, well, the colonies, particularly, um, the Puritans uh, and the people we call pilgrims, they were religious separatists, um, they broadly had Calvinist theological leanings. So, uh, covenant theology draws a great deal on the Old Testament um, and these covenants. So you have uh, like the covenant with Adam and Eve, like be fruitful and multiply is part of the co- is, is one of those covenants. Um, the the covenant that is kind of being referenced or you know knowingly or unknowingly, the, the covenant that's being referenced when we talk about America and being faithful to God and blessed by God and that kind of thing. Um, is really the covenant that God makes with Moses and extends into the covenant with Joshua when they enter the promised land. So um, John Winthrop, uh, one of the leaders of the Puritan community, he quoted um, from uh, that covenant um, in his uh, speech called The Model of Christian Charity. And basically what that, uh, this is where we get the city on a hill language mm-hmm. um, that comes from scripture, but that gets applied to the United States. Um, so basically what that says is, um, you know, I set before you uh, the way of life and the way of death and which one are you going to choose? Um, and basically the covenant says, if you, the people in the Old Testament, it's you, the, the Israelites. Um, for John Winthrop, it's you, this original pilgrim, or um, sorry, this original Puritan community. Uh, if you follow God, if you are faithful to God, then God is going to bless you and make you prosperous. But if you're not faithful to God, 
um, then you're not going to be a blessed and prosperous community. It's paraphrasing this combination of what God says, uh, what Moses says is he's kind of passing the baton to Joshua. Um, and then what John Winthrop says in a model of Christian charity. And so the Puritan community had that understanding of themselves that we have to be faithful to God under this covenant. Uh, and as long as we do that, then God is going to bless us. And that blessing would mean things like having good crop yields. Or um, they saw um, Native Americans dying off of disease. Um, they saw that as a sign of God's blessing. Um, so that's problematic for other reasons. Um, things like that. Say, so, okay, as long as all of us, uh, we, we structure our community in a way that kind of leads people to be faithful to God. So they say, okay, the laws are such that um, just by living here and following the law, you will be faithful to God. Uh, so it's not about personal profession of faith. That had a place in the Puritan community, but it's separate from the covenant. Yeah. Um, so any individual or family or group or anything like that, that is not faithful to God, they put the entire community at risk. So if you have, uh, so if you, if you have um, a person in town who is refusing to go to church and is lazy and is a drunkard, that's not just an individual problem with that person that jeopardizes God's blessing for the entire community. So that person either needs, needs to either be brought into line or ostracized. And that's what the Puritan community did. So the Puritans, they kind of, um, they morph and change over time, but that kind of covenant mindset becomes part of the DNA of the colonies, which then translates into some of the founding fathers. And we, it carries through in a lot of ways today. So this, um, even going back to what we're talking about with abortion and same-sex marriage and that kind of thing, for some people um, who come from this more kind of covenantal tradition, they're saying, okay, that's not just like an issue of, you know, we care about unborn, the unborn and we want to do everything we can to ensure that they um, have life. For some people, that's this issue of abortion uh, threatens God's blessing yeah. on America. Um, and so there's there's a whole range of kind of reasons that I see that as problematic. Yeah. The basic I'm... <laughs> one being that the United States is not Israel. Yeah. Um, but that that's really where that covenant thinking is coming from. So the, the Constitution does get like integrated into that by people who would say, um, who see the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence almost as inspired documents on the same level as Scripture? Yeah, uh, which is also wow. problematic for several reasons. Right. Uh, it's as you're sharing this, it's so interesting that pro that promise of prosperity. I, some of the problems I see as you're talking about this, like one, America has been a somewhat prosperous nation, and mm -hmm. but then that can lead to this sort of pride, like. Mm -hmm. See, look at the evidence. We've been prosperous. We've been faithful to God. And uh, underdeveloped countries obviously uh, must not have been faithful to God. And that's why they aren't prosperous. And then it can create this sort of almost this nationalistic pride mm -hmm. that we are better than, uh, you know, America is superior than these other nations of the world. The other ironic thing is that this covenantal 
kind of idea has its roots in Calvinism, um, but sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel. You know, if mm-hmm. you do this, God will make you prosperous. And in some of the uh, disagreements, at least in the theological realm, between the prosperity gospel and other Christians is most sharply present between the Calvinists and the mm-hmm. prosperity movement. It's just, that's just ironic. But um so yeah, I could definitely see how that could lead to some nationalistic ideas. So I guess with that, like, could you sort of explain, because uh, you've written about nationalism and things, and you've met, we've talked about it a little bit here, but like, could you go ahead and unpack a little bit, like, what is Christian nationalism? Uh, what are some signs? Like, you might be a Christian nationalist if, uh, mm-hmm. and why is it problematic? Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, Christian nationalism is kind of a matrix of ideas, different, if you like Google it and you read like scholarly definitions of it, there'll be some subtle differences between them. Um, there's not like one definitive definition. Uh, but basically what it would say is that Christian faith or at least Christian behavior uh, are prerequisites for full inclusion in the nation. And in this case, the nation being the United States. Uh, so nationalism, taking setting aside the Christian part, um, nationalism seeks to create boundaries. Uh, it says, okay, who is in and who is out? Um, sometimes that can be a good thing. Um, sometimes that can take the form of like independence movements. Uh, so for example, um, the countries of Africa that fought for their independence against Britain and France, those were nationalist movements. They're saying, okay, we are Ghanaian or we are, um, you know, South African or whatever. And saying, okay, this is the boundary around who we are and we want to be self-governing. That's kind of a positive version of nationalism. Um, in other places, nationalism can be rooted in a shared history. It can be a shared language. It can be uh, an ethnic identity. So um, there's such a thing as Jewish nationalism. That would really be an ethnic and as well as a religious uh, identity. Um, so you could have nationalism that doesn't really have much to do with religion. It's just saying, okay, who's part of the nation and who isn't? Uh, who can be a citizen and who can't? Who can fully participate in this country and who can't? Uh, so when the thing that kind of defines who is us and who is them is Christianity, what you have is Christian nationalism. So in the United States, sometimes Christian nationalism takes the form of that legislative component, um, intentionally trying to legislate things in a more Christian direction. Um, some issues of religious liberty have a Christian nationalist bent, but by no means all. Uh, more commonly what we see in the United States kind of just on the ground among common people that's not political necessarily um, is Christian nationalism that kind of says you really need to be Christian or at least conformed to a Christian moral code in order to fully participate in and enjoy America. So uh, Islamophobia. is a result of this kind of Christian nationalism. Um, A lot of uh, white supremacy overlaps um, with Christian nationalism. Um, Basically says, you know, this is a Christian nation culturally and or 
politically. Uh, and so if you don't agree with that or you're not willing to conform with that, then you can legally be allowed to be a citizen. Uh, in some cases, in some countries, that wouldn't be true. Um, you can be a citizen, you can have your rights protected, but you'll always be seen as kind of suspect or kind of a second class citizen. So um, the whole uh, birther thing with Obama, um, that's tied to that. Uh, this idea that, well, he can't really be president because he has to have been born outside the United States, which he wasn't, or he's actually a Muslim, which he's not. Um, even though there's nothing legally that requires this actually unconstitutional for there to be a religious requirement for public service, um, to accuse someone of being Muslim immediately makes them suspect um, because of this Christian nationalism. Um, it's not always violent by any means. It's not always something that people are aware of because depending on where you are in the country, it's just kind of part of the right. religious culture. Yeah. So, but it can become violent. Uh, it can become very politically extreme. Uh, and even in its subtle forms, it um, malforms our understanding of what Christianity is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think sometimes how that might manifest most clearly is I've seen, uh, whether it's about like uh, someone who doesn't speak English, you know, either mm -hmm. learn English or get out of here type mm -hmm. of rhetoric or, um, yeah, either like go practice your uh, your Islamic faith somewhere else. Because it's, um, even though ironically, like freedom of religion is a key component of our country, uh, mm -hmm. it's it's gets narrowly defined as freedom of almost privilege of religion for Christianity is, is what some. Um, and so I guess what I would say is like, as a Christ follower, I think we should be cautious making those sort of statements about people. Like if this, you know, if, if you align with this, then you don't belong here um, in, in America. But even more importantly, like uh, if you are a Christ follower, that gets sort of imposed on your faith. You're, you're saying, I, th I think our call as Christians is more invitational. Like Jesus, more often than not, extended the invitation for people who are far off to come to the table of grace. Um, he actually said to people who were told they didn't belong, like, no, you, you belong uh, at the table with me. So I think that that stuff for me is, is it gets real dangerous when we start saying, you know, you don't belong because uh, of this or that. Mm -hmm. I want to turn a corner a little bit and maybe like um, it's probably clear that uh, both of us have a different way of seeing a couple things than maybe a lot of other believers. But I want to try to uh, like hopefully offer some some points of like how could we move forward or how could we morph. Uh, but so we may not see eye to eye, even you and I may not if we dove really deep into things. But. Um, we do want to follow Christ faithfully, I think, uh, is there's common ground there. So um, so when it comes to like public policy, uh, there's kind of a growing divide uh, in how we live out or how we approach living out those convictions. So as we already talked, to, uh, or talked to, as we already mm -hmm. mentioned, uh, like many Christians, including us, are deeply convicted about the issue of abortion. Um, and a lot of times that becomes like a single 
issue vote. But mm -hmm. I know, and this is true of me, uh, there's more nuanced things too, uh, that I'm also uh, believe being pro-life means I'm pro the life of the immigrant, the poor, the refugee, mm -hmm. the minority. Um, and then even things about the environment. I just see back in Genesis, the first thing we were uh, given was dominion and stewardship of creation. So um, I can't just write off climate issues and I'm not super informed on all that stuff. I'm trying, we try to recycle and do our part in that way. Uh, but, but those things matter to me. Um, so how can we find common, like we have these nuanced convictions and things I think we could all make biblical arguments for, like what are some common ground or um, even if at the end of the day, we would maybe vote differently, how can we still be part of the community of Christ together? Like what are some things you would recommend uh, to, if you were speaking to kind of the, the church as a whole or to believers, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Yeah, I think. One of the things is um, you, you said the word nuance. I think nuance is huge. Uh, it is much easier to either um, choose one or two things to care about and go all in and ignore everything else. That's really easy. Uh, it's intellectually easy. It gives us fewer things to kind of rattle around in our brains. Um, it is also easier for us to, once we've decided on those few things, to kind of just choose to align entirely with whatever party kind of agrees with us on those few things. Right. And when we do that, we inevitably excuse and justify things that aren't consistent with Christian teaching. So that's the first thing is we recognize like the Christian faith is nuanced. Uh, each issue that we care about is nuanced. Um, abortion itself is a nuanced issue. Uh, I think that's something Christians are are really bad about. Uh, the wh when I when I see the way Christian people talk about women who mm. have had abortions, uh, that hurts. Like that's not a a missional, loving yeah. way to talk about people. Um, even if you deeply disagree with the choice yeah. that they've made. Uh, or that they've had to make a choice that they didn't want to make. Um, and so we need to be operating on with a foundation of love and compassion saying, okay, I, I disagree, but I love you. Um, yeah. And I love you doesn't mean screaming and rejection. It means compassion and listening and care. It also doesn't mean just accepting everything as fine. It's not moral relativism. So, being nuanced, being intellectually honest about what our positions are and why. And then kind of a separate issue is to what degree then do, do our Christian convictions translate to legislation? And that gets really complicated. Um, and it differs depending on the issue. Um, so uh, it's probably more complicated than I can really have time to explore here. But um, I just say it, it's not a foregone conclusion that what Christians um, believe or adhere to morally should also then be legislated. And so we have to kind of think through individually and as denominations and churches, kind of what are our positions that are part of what we preach? What are our positions that maybe we lobby for and different 
Christian communities come to different conclusions about that. Uh, but the important thing is that you arrive at that point through really carefully thinking through the nuances rather than just saying, well, this is what my faith leads me to believe, therefore, therefore it should be the law of the land. To think through that real carefully. You may come to that conclusion about some issues, but get there by really carefully thinking through it. So um, I did a series of blog posts around um, kind of leading up to the election in the fall where, where I went through a whole bunch of different categories of Christian, the way Christians approach that. So if listeners are um, curious about that, that's out there. Um, I think we, we have to start with love and compassion and listening yeah. uh, and being willing to be wrong, um, being willing to accept the possibility that we could be wrong about something. Uh, that changing our minds or even compromising is not a moral failure. Um, and especially that's, that's kind of how government works. That's how the United States government is set up to work is on compromise. But people are so opposed to compromise right now. People equate compromise with being yeah. wishy-washy or something yeah. rather than saying this is how it is intentionally set up this way by the framers in order to kind of rein in extremes through compromising. Like I'll give up some of my most extreme wants. If you give up some of your most extreme wants and we'll end up with something that's good for the majority of the country. That's how Congress is really supposed to work. Um, and it hasn't worked that way for quite a while now because of uh, unwillingness on both sides um, to compromise. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just really big on nuance. I'm big on uh, accepting that tension is and should be a part of the Christian life. And if it's too easy, if we're not really having to think carefully through our decisions uh, around political and social engagement, then that means we've kind of turned our brains off and we've stopped trying to be faithful. Yeah. Uh, and I've just kind of gone into autopilot. And I don't think our faith can ever be in autopilot. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I think the compassion and empathy and listening and the important thing about that is, uh, well, I guess one of the things I would say is it's probably best done face to face, not probably through a, in a comment thread. And I'm guilty of, of getting caught up in that on, on comment threads. Um, but also the thing I've said and I try to remind myself and others is compassion, empathy and listening does not require agreement. Like mm -hmm. we, we can listen to people and empathize and understand and, um, and still not, that doesn't mean we fully align or agree. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I have one more uh, kind of bigger theory, maybe level question uh, mm -hmm. then, um, then we can, you know, try to kind of wrap things up here shortly. But one of the other kind of polarizing issues revolves around uh, socialism and capitalism and mm -hmm. this this major fear that we are well actually yeah basically i've seen people posting sort of like here we go it's all it's all over yeah. biden's president we are going to become a socialist country and every you know we're going to be the next yeah. venezuela um or, or whatever um and then get, what gets wrapped up in that though is if i want to talk about having compassion for the poor uh or standing in solidarity with people of color um or even having compassion uh for well yeah, uh, for that mother who had a board, like start talking there. It's like, 
the call to compassion and, and being Jesus to people isn't heard. It's, it's heard, it's hijacked by these political issues and, and it's a left socialistic thing to care about the poor. Um, and it's like, no, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. And so like, um, well, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think how to ask it exactly. Like those, those two extremes between those theories and that fear, maybe where's that fear coming from? Um, how can we, how can we talk about loving people and, and maybe stray away from them getting hijacked by these political issues because they're people issues. Um, do you have any maybe guardrails for those kinds of things? Yeah. I think scripture is our first guardrail. Uh, we have to be spending time in scripture. Um, the more time we spend in scripture and not just, I don't think there's anything wrong with devotional booklets and things like that, but they tend to focus on, um, verses that have kind of an inspirational or directly applicable uh, emphasis. So if all we're reading is kind of a smattering of verses here and there that either kind of help us individually feel loved by God or something, which, you know, that's great. That's really important. <laughs> we should feel loved yeah. by God um, or that are kind of helping us navigate our personal relationships or things like that. Like those things are great, but if we read the whole council of scripture, what we find is a concern for the poor. Like it's just there, yeah. uh, especially in the prophets. Mm -hmm. um, it's just there. And, you know, a lot of people, I think of what I used to avoid uh, the major and minor prophets uh, and, and didn't read in them. But if you do like, yeah, it's mm -hmm. unavoidable. Yeah. And if the prophets are kind of intimidating, because they can be. I mean, if you start yeah. with the prophets, I think they're a little easier to digest because they're short. Yeah. But, yeah. but the prophets are legitimately confusing at points. You can start reading mm -hmm. the prophets and be like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but uh, not only in the prophets, of course, um, throughout the Mosaic law in, the, in um, uh, Deuteronomy and um, reiterated uh, in Leviticus, um, you have this consistent concern for caring for foreigners among you um leaving out I, we've probably all heard of um the the charity group leanings right that comes from the old testament <laughs> they like leave 10 percent of your crop uh unharvested so that there's something there for the poor like that's just throughout scripture so the more we're spending time in scripture the more our beliefs about poverty and social engagement and things like that are going to be shaped by scripture instead of by these um, false dichotomies that are presented to mm. us in the culture. Yeah. So that's the first thing. That's good. You have to be in the word. Um, and then the second thing is we need to be intellectually honest. Uh, there are multiple types of capitalism. There are levels of capitalism. Um and there are multiple types of socialism and there are levels of socialism. So first of all, it's just disingenuous to say that Joe Biden is a socialist. He's just not like, I know what socialism is. I studied it. <laughs> you know, he's not like his policy positions don't align with socialism. Um, some people in, uh, in the far left are closer 
to socialism, but even then they're close to socialism, like what we see in like England or Denmark or Norway, not Soviet Russia. Yeah. Um, so that's important. Like you can still disagree with them vehemently <laughs> about their positions, but be honest about what their positions actually are. Um, same thing with capitalism. Uh, for some people, capitalism just as a system at all is irredeemably evil. Um, capitalism can be exercised justly and it can be exercised unjustly. Uh, and it can contribute to justice. It can contribute to injustice. It's a system and it's how we use and apply the system that determines what the outcomes are. So we can be in a capitalist system and say, you know, the free market is disadvantaging people in this way. So how do we kind of adjust a little bit here and there without then leaping to the other extreme saying, well, that's socialist. Yeah. Um, part of where that comes from, the Marxism, socialism have long been um, kind of a, a convenient enemy. Uh, and so it's easy to kind of lump in, yeah, concern for the poor or um, critique of capitalism or anything like that. You just immediately call that socialism or Marxism. And Marxism in particular became like the big enemy during the Red Scare, uh, kind of the height of the Soviet Union. Um, and so anyone who was suspect was automatically suspected of being a Marxist, whatever, whatever their positions were. Well, they're a Marxist and that's kind of the worst enemy. Um, and of course, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore and all that, but that kind of Marxist as kind of a convenient tag for anyone left of center um, who yeah. people right of center disagree with, like, oh, well, they're a Marxist. Um, people, uh, I, mean, I mean, the FBI was watching Martin Luther King Jr. partly because he was being accused mm. of being a communist, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, so there's just a really long history there. Uh, and so it, and to say like, oh, well, I, I reject anything that has any kind of even tangential connection or possible connection to Marxism while it's evil. It's a, it's a system. Um, yeah. It doesn't. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just intellectually disingenuous. So we have to like have accurate terms, know what Marxism and socialism actually are. This is this is honestly one of my pet peeves because my my dissertation is on the church in the Soviet Union. <laughs> so I know a lot about what socialism and Marxism actually are. I know enough about them to know that the consequences of them can indeed be devastating and frightening. But I also know enough to know that most people who are using those terms casually don't quite understand what they actually mean. And so they're just using them as kind of a catchphrase um, yeah. to say, I don't have to deal with that because it's Marxist. So I don't have yeah. to deal with what might be a valid critique or what might be beneficial or something like that. Yeah. So nuance, intellectual honesty, uh, yeah. not intentionally using hyperbole and extremist language in order to provoke fear yeah. from other people that kind of thing and and as you were talking in, in that idea it's a system and i was thinking it's a human system and so it's flawed mm -hmm. but what has happened is there are certain systems and uh individuals candidates and parties uh, or at least 
platforms of parties that have sort of been like sanctified mm-hmm. and deemed as uh, like in alignment with the Bible and therefore mm-hmm. off limits for critique right. and to critique anything about capitalism, for example, is almost like it's, it's off limits. It's like, that's, that's like almost with some people, it's like equated with like, that's heretical <laughs> that you would even, you know, uh, intellectually wrestle with critiquing it. And, mm-hmm. and that's been something I've run into, I think is, is what's happened. These things have been deemed, but we need to remember they're not, they may have overlap with things with scripture, but they are human systems. And so they're, they're going to be, there's going to be flaws and it's actually okay to, to wrestle with those flaws as Christ followers and point them out. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important for us just to recognize that capitalism is a modern economic system. Like it wasn't a thing in the Bible. (laughs) Right. Totally Um, foreign. Like conceptually, (laughs) intellectually, it wasn't a thing. Like the scripture has implications. Absolutely. For the way we um, function within a capitalist society, for the way capitalism runs, things like that. We can apply biblical principles, but we can't really read capitalism or socialism or really enter any modern economic system back into the Bible and say, well, Jesus is sanctifying this. Yeah. This is a modern system. How do we operate within Mm -hmm. it in a way that reflects the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, the, the, in a, I think it kind of is interrelated to capitalism, sort of our individualism. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and, and that also is highly foreign, you know, to mm-hmm. the, the biblical context. And uh, the thing we forget as Americans too, and I didn't know until like our individualism is not just foreign to the scripture. It's really foreign to a good chunk of the, the world. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's other cultures are more collectivist and things. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of capitalism is very much rooted in like, this is mine because I earned it. And, you know, there's ability to, I, I earned my salary. I worked hard for it. I don't want somebody yep. else to steal it. Um, but uh, so that, that also gets wrapped up in Christianity saying, mm-hmm. you know, individual faith, it's all about me when, I mean, the, let the same mind be in you who's also let the same mind be in you that was also in Christ who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but he emptied himself to the point of death like that's what it means to have the mind of Christ is by definition the Christian life is not the life of self-seeking it's the life of sacrifice and so that should give us tension as we Mm -hmm. as we earn our salaries and consider policies and that that's just complicated and we can't say that capitalism is like an inherently christian system like chronologically or morally that doesn't mean yeah. capitalism is evil right but it means that our faith gives us moral boundaries for how we live in a capitalist society just as the christian faith gave moral boundaries for the way people lived in the soviet union under a communist society um there's there's some lessons there but that's a a topic for any time yeah yeah um yeah there's things i'd love to ask uh further but we've we've probably uh probably spent a good amount of time here um 
this is probably hard to answer, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, in in light of living with this tension between king being kingdom citizens and uh, citizens of the United States, if there was just sort of one uh, one thing you would just encourage Christ followers uh, to pursue or to consider moving forward, uh, what's what's kind of this like one admonition to the to the church or uh, encouragement for the church? Mm. The first thing that comes to mind, something I've been thinking and praying a lot about lately is the fruit of the spirit. Mm. I you know, love joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I, I think those are all qualities that we see lacking in, in, to various degrees in ourselves and in others. Um, but I think the fruit of the spirit can be a really helpful practical guide. Uh, for us, like, I'm not a, I don't think everything needs to be practical, but I think when we're trying to navigate, uh, you know, how do I live? How do I act? How do I vote? That kind of thing. We can ask ourselves, you know, is, is this position producing the fruit of the spirit in me? Yeah. Um, is it born out of the fruit of the spirit in me? Is it going to assist others in growing in the fruit of the spirit? So I think about that in contrast to things that are rage provoking in particular, yeah. we see a lot of rage right now. If, if you're watching news or reading news or something, and the fruit of what you're reading is rage, that is not helpful. You can yeah. read things that I think can be things. There are things that absolutely should be upsetting. There are things that should fill us with righteous indignation. Um, but Things are producing fear in us, producing rage in us. Those are not of God. And so you say, okay, maybe this source of information or maybe this person or maybe this rhetoric is not going to draw me closer to Christ. And so I need to seek truth. truth. Yeah. When we're seeking truth, who is Christ, even when we encounter things we disagree with, we can rejoice in knowing truth. Uh, yeah. And so that that's just something that, there's a lot of ways I could answer that question, but that's something no. that, um, I've been coming back to a lot lately. Yeah, no, that's actually, it's ironic. I me me as well. Cause I've been, I've, oh, sometimes I make the mistake of reading um, comment threads on Twitter or yeah, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes Perfect. I see things and people who, who are claiming to be Christ followers, but they're, they're very mean. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I wrestle internally, like, man, is my view wrong? Cause I don't want to be wrong. I don't, as a pastor too, I don't want to lead people in a, a wrong, in the wrong direction or, or whatever. I don't want to be entrenched in my view, but I've come time and time again. It's like, you know, we can, even if some people are right about their particular view on an issue, if it's, if their reaction and their, their social media witness isn't characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, uh, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self if it's not characterized by those things, specifically also like love, kindness, gentleness, mm -hmm. like, yeah, I, I can sort of walk away and wash my hands of it and say, you know, they weren't exhibiting that fruit. And so I guess I would rather be wrong in my perspective, but maintain a sense of gentleness and kindness with people than be right and uh, be a 
be not very kind, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, I, I guess I should say, yeah, I've, I've thought about that a lot too. And I uh, try to filter. Um, I want to share, and if there's another, another place, uh, any social media things that you would invite people to follow, but your blog is uh, Miranda Zapor, Z-A-P-O-R, Cruz, C-R-U-Z.com. Uh, Miranda Zapor, Cruz.com. Uh, you teach at Indian Westland, so if anyone wanted to audit a class, put a plug in for iWoo there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but are there any uh, other like books or resources? Like if you, if people wanted to investigate some of this stuff theologically or um, some more academically, maybe, uh, what are some books you'd recommend? Are there other places that if people wanted to uh, just interact with your work that they could go? Um, not so much with my work. <laughs> I love teaching. So most of my time goes here. Uh, so other than yeah, the yeah. blog, I'm not uh, kind of out in the public world that much. Um, there's a long list of books that I could recommend to people. I would say my, um, the blog post, um, uh, my most recent post as of this date, <laughs> anyway, um, lights out in the shining city. Mm-hmm. Each paragraph of that includes some recommended oh, yeah. books. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's, that's one place. Like, um, if you're if you're wondering, kind of, some of them are more historical, some of them are more kind of sociological, yeah. um, but they're all connected, to like evangelicalism and politics. So that's one place. Um, as far as uh, other kind of resources and that kind of thing, um, the and campaign, like the word and, um, is uh, a good place to look. Um, they're they're online they're on social media just and campaign uh and they're really interested in um very very similarly um questions of the relationship between uh like having a moral order to society um but also uh na- navigating that question of saying okay well like christians don't really fully align with either political party so it's the and part of the and campaign is really resisting that false dichotomy and saying, yeah. well, it's this or that. No, it's actually something more complicated in between. Uh, so that's a good place to look. Um, the directors of that campaign uh, have a book out that the title is escaping me, but you would find it um, on their website. Um, Oh, I'm so I'm so deep in this. It's always hard to think of just a few uh, resources, but I, I think that um, that blog post with that list of books that'll yep. also help. If you're like really interested, like where did this moral focus come from, or where did this political focus come from? Um, other authors, though, to look at: um, Randall Balmer, Mark Knoll. Um, they both deal with um, evangelicalism broadly, but they've also written quite a bit on evangelicalism and politics or American religion and politics and that kind of thing. So that's a starting point. That's good. Um, Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me and for uh, the the part of the hope with this podcast is that listeners will sort of get to listen in on a conversation instead of read a bunch of angry comments that, um, you know, maybe on that, that a dialogue uh, and in so and by listening, maybe, be able to facilitate dialogue themselves. So thank you for joining us. It was really, really good to to connect with you. Happy to do it.